Last weekend, SOAS hosted the International Social Forum, organized by the Labour Party and the SOAS Department of Economics. This was an opportunity for Labour to bring together politicians, economists and social movement leaders from across the world, opening dialogue on ways to reform international institutions in tackling climate change and growing inequality. In the opening plenary, we heard Dilma Rousseff, the former president of Brazil, who warned us against the danger of the extreme use of lawfare by the far right, as seen in Brazil, and called for Lula's release. We also heard Jayati Ghosh, professor of economics, from the Jawaharlal Nehru University of Delhi discussing the need for the regulation and taxation of financial markets and digital companies and for the end of the intellectual property regime. Naledi Chirwa, the Economic Freedom Fighter representative in the South African National Assembly, reminded us that marginalized communities remain excluded from the Democratic Forum and advocated for the creation of a special economic zone and for a borderless Africa. The two-day forum included talks and workshops focusing on themes such as migration, finance, trade and protectionism, climate change, and voices from the Global South. Amongst the many activists, researchers, and politicians present, we heard Assad Rehman from War on Want talking about the risks of neocolonialism in environmental activism and the need for developed countries to set up decarbonizing targets for 2030. So when we talk about climate change, you can't move climate change without talking about inequality. And that talks us also, of course, about the inevitable consequence of neoliberalism. Now, but the answer to this, well, some people seem to be saying that the answer to this is a return to Keynesianism. That's all we need to do. You know, if it's terrible, this neoliberalism, we can stimulate some consumer demand, we can promote economic growth, and everything will be all right. Well, in reality, it potentially will be. What we'll have is, of course, social democracy in the global north and neocolonial globalization in the global south. Because what that is simply impossible when we talk about the limits that the environmental crisis put on us. So what do we need? We actually, as John said, we have to rediscover and reimagine a new internationalism. <laughs> it has to be an anti-imperialist. It has to recognize that the shape of our societies in the global north stem back to the Enlightenment and the, dis the doctrine of discovery, which both said, which both said, there's a hierarchy of races, right? The Caucasians are at the top. All these people in the global south are willingly to be sacrificed. If we don't understand that, we don't understand how slavery took place, how colonialism took place, why the wars of imperialism took place in the 1970s, and why neoliberalism has been successfully able to sacrifice people in the global south for decades. And of course, now citizens of the global north have woken up because they think it's going to impact them. But they were happy to continue that model of economy when it was just simply leaving the global south. Also present was Daniela Gabor, Associate Professor in Economics at the University of the West of England, who brilliantly explained the Wall Street consensus. She also warned us against the privatization of public services being sold as sustainable development goals from private investors. This development paradigm is called maximizing finance for development, and it basically relies on the idea or it promotes the idea that poverty, inequality, and the climate crisis could be sorted out if we get uh, global institutional investors who are sitting on trillions and trillions of cash into development projects. And I call this paradigm the Wall Street consensus to remind us that we are coming in international development from the Wall Street consensus and the Washington consensus. And this Washington consensus basically argued 
that if you get markets involved into um, uh, the allocation of resources, if you neutralize the state, everything will get better. Now we know how that went, uh, and what the Wall Street consensus is doing now is reimagining uh, international development, and I will argue that it's reimagining international development in a very interesting and potentially, to my mind, as a progressive economist, very dangerous way, in that it's proposing to reimagine the state. The state reappears in the Wall Street consensus, and I will show you that I think the state will have the role of de-risking uh, development projects for in, uh, institutional investors. But we also met with Yanis Varoufakis, former Greek Prime Minister of Finance and Professor of Economics. Laura Siegler had the opportunity to chat with him about the European environmental agenda and his campaign for transnational democracy. Here is their conversation. Thank you, Yanis, for joining us today. You're most welcome. I wanted to focus a little bit on environment. This mm-hmm. is the focus of this international social forum. With the economic rift seeming to be still expanding between Southern Europe on the one hand and the core European countries on the other hand, what is the scope for common environmental agenda of the European left? So the question is not just global, but it's also within Europe, because uh, the fragmentation of uh, oligarchy capitalism and financialized capitalism is detrimental to any attack against the climate extinction um, that we're facing. We have a remarkable disconnect, imbalance between the amount of liquidity of money which is available, idle savings, and the amount of investment in things humanity needs. Never before have we had so little investment in what humanity needs in relation as a percentage of the available money. We have the highest level of savings in the history of capitalism and the lowest level in comparative terms of investment, especially in the technologies of the future that will prevent the climate catastrophe. So this is a global problem, it's a European problem, but it's also a problem within our countries. So, you know, if you look at the UK, you have amazing disparities in investment between North and South, between East and West, between London and the rest. So this is a disease. (laughs) And it's the result of the manner in which uh, um, we have dealt with the 2008 crisis, the build-up of financial bubbles before that, what happened when those bubbles burst in 2008, uh, a policy of socialism for the bankers and uh, harsh austerity for everyone else, which uh, then perpetuates itself in this manner. So to answer your question succinctly after a very long introduction, what we need to do, we need public institutions, the purpose of which will be uh, across the world, at the UK level, national level, at the European level, but internationally, they will be energizing idle cash into the technologies of the future, and they will be doing this in a way that makes sense from the planet's perspective, because this is a planetary crisis, not a UK crisis, not the European crisis, a crisis of the planet. So you need two things, firstly, uh, public institutions that uh, put money to good public use, and you need a massive redistribution of wealth, not just income, of wealth, of property rights also, from the global north to the global south. But when we think about challenging this inequality between north and south and climate change from this European perspective, do you think transnational democracy is 
the solution. Considering as well that, for example, we saw Hungary, Poland and Czech Republic that recently refused to sign the zero net carbon emission target for 2050. We certainly need transnational democratic institutions because all the bad people have them. The bankers are transnational in their institutional organization. When the banks failed, they managed to create um, networks of solidarity between them and between them and the central banks that effectively refloated the financial sector across the world. Uh, the fascists, look at Steve Bannon, are organizing transnationally and internationally. Only the progressives and the ecological movements are failing to do so. So we need transnational institutions. And since they are going to be progressive ones representing the many, not the few, as Jeremy Corbyn would say, they better be democratic. So we need transnational democracy. It's a huge challenge. DiEM25, the movement that I belong to, uh, has been trying for three years to put this together in Europe. Uh, we have succeeded in the microcosm of DiEM25, which is a good uh, laboratory of transnational democratic politics. But how to upscale it, to scale this up, is the challenge. All that I can say is that unless we succeed, it's game over for all of us. What would be the risk uh, in speaking in the name of transnational people without having constructed one yet, and especially in terms of you know our struggle for environmental protection? Look, the juxtaposition between the national and the transnational is was always uh, a constructed one. Uh, in exactly the same way that the nation is a construction. Up until 150 years ago, there were no nation states. Uh, we had, trans we had um, uh, multicultural, multinational um, empire states. I mean, the UK is a multinational state as we speak. Uh, tell the Scots that they're English and you've lost them as friends forever. Naturally so. So the question is, where does sovereignty come from? Where does the power of the people come from? The more global the problems become, whether this is climate change, or public debt, or banking, or protection of workers' rights in the face of automation, the greater the need for an expansion of sovereignty and of people power beyond the limits of borders. How can Europe secure this, this zero carbon emission target uh, without shifting the burden um, to developing nations, especially through this, this use of uh, carbon credits? Well, the way to do it is by not dumping anymore on the developing world. Yeah? Now what they're doing, what Europe is doing, is we're dumping. We've been dumping all our rubbish for decades. The, the, the key is not to produce rubbish, not to use fossil fuels. If you don't use fossil fuels, you don't need carbon credits. You do not need to seek out uh, countries in Africa and Asia that will um, effectively lend you the right to pollute, because this is what carbon credits are. We have the technology now to move towards zero emissions without any transfer of bads as opposed to goods from Europe to the rest of the world. All we need is money. And the fantastic fact is that we have the money. Uh, never before has Europe had so many idle savings. If you've noticed, we have negative interest rates across Europe. Across Europe, even in countries that are poor, 
interest rates are negative. That should ring alarm bells that there is something fundamentally wrong. Because effectively what you're saying is, what we're saying, the moment you mention negative rates is that um, money people, moneyed people, are prepared to pay governments for the right to lend to them. So why are we not taking this money to put to good use? The answer is because capitalism is structured in a way that generates coordination failures. So this this would lead to nationalization of energy network at large? Not necessarily nationalization, it could be socialization. I mean, the beauty of uh, zero emission technologies of renewable energy is that it's fundamentally decentralized in a way that um, traditional energy grids never were. So now the technology is um, amenable to democratization because you can have every house, every neighborhood owning its own battery cells and its own uh, wind farm and its own uh, solar panels and they can all be simultaneously producers of energy and consumers of energy in a smart decentralized system that doesn't belong to anyone except to you know society even without the state intervening so there is a great prospect of moving towards um, a social economy model where you have public ownership with individual homes and communities participating both as consumers and producers. Do you have an example of um, that functioning at the moment? No, no, no example of a nation state, but you can look at communities where this is happening. And you have to remember that that's how capitalism emerged in Italy in you know the, at the beginning of the Renaissance. Some cities had cells of capitalist economies that had moved away from feudalism. And once those became viable, then at some point, uh, capitalism spread to the rest of the world. So as long as we have communities that operate along the lines of a decentralized grid of renewable energy, production and distribution, then scaling it up is just a technical issue. So the M25 just won nine seats uh, yeah. at the parliament after the general election. Mm-hmm. Um, so looking back, what did you learn from your resignation from government in 2015? And what can the M25 do to revive the opportunity for a radical shift to the left that Syriza failed to achieve? Well, what I learned in 2015 was the greatest enemy of progress resides within progressive parties. We didn't lose because of the ironclad enemy. We knew that the enemy would be ironclad and they would try to throttle us. Uh, as always, when it comes to the left, when it comes to the good people, we lose because we fall out with one another, because we don't hold the, 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 the line, because some go over to the other side. It happened in Britain in the 1920s when the Liberal Party was fresh with Ramsay MacDonald, who um, introduced in the end austerity as a Labour Prime Minister in cahoots with the Tories. It happened in Greece in 2015. It is essential that we have a, a movement that uh, completely controls the government, as opposed to a government that uses the movement in order to uh, become autonomous. The moment the government becomes autonomous of the movement, it becomes exceptionally easy for the establishment to cop them. That's the lesson I learned from 2015. It's a lesson that we knew already, but we were blind to the fact that it was uh, not being learned by the rest of us in in the party and in the government. Uh, what the M25 and the Greek variety of it, Mera 25, what we managed to do against the background of demonization 
of complete exclusion from the media. We had zero resources, no funding whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we ran a campaign um, that um, to many looked hopeless. But nevertheless, because we concentrated on programmatic language, we spoke on the basis of what needs to be done. No characterization of opponents, negative one. No mudslinging. We stood on the foundation of proposals for all those issues that wreck people's lives and keep them awake at night and send their children to immigration to force the immigration. And in the end, that was appreciated. We went up and down the country a number of times. We held debates, not simply giving speeches or conferences. We had long, hard, arduous debates. And in the end, that was appreciated. So now we uh, we end up with a small number of MPs, but still significant one, nine out of 300. And our task, a gigantic task, is to be the, the only credible opposition, because I'm afraid that um, my series of colleagues, former colleagues, uh, simply don't have what it takes to oppose the new, the new government. Simply, the reason I'm saying that is because they signed into law all the austerity and privatization measures that now the, the right uh, will uh, happily implement. Uh, and therefore, what will Tsipras and my former comrades say to them? Bring back the airports, bring back the railways, bring back pensions and uh, austerity. Because, you know, Mr. Mitsotakis and the new rightist authoritarian government is going to turn around and say, but you brought all this in. You signed all that into law. So the duty of Mera 25, DiEM 25 parliamentarians is to carry the huge burden of opposing the rightist government, and not just the rightist government, but also the foundation of the agreement between the previous government of Syriza with the Troika, uh, on which the most parasitic oligarchic regime is being built now by means of the new government. So do you hope that the appointment of Christine Lagarde as president of the European Central Bank could signify the death of the Troika um, in case of a new crisis? Firstly, I cannot possibly accept the premise on which the question is based. And the premise is that the crisis has ended and that another crisis may come. The crisis has never ended. The crisis that began in 2008 is metamorphosizing, it is unfolding, it is developing, it is evolving, but it has never gone away. So it's a question of the same old crisis taking on a new form. Uh, secondly, uh, no, Christine Lagarde is part and parcel of the Troika. She was there from the beginning. She's not capable of moving beyond the lo- logic of the Troika. The great question regarding Christine Lagarde being now the head of the European Central Bank is that the great problem that she's facing is that she's uh, going to replace a man, Marius Raghi, who's been credited with saving the euro, even though the policies that he left behind for her to use are now no longer fit for purpose. So she's facing a gigantic challenge Mm. because if she sticks to the policies of Mario Draghi, uh, she will fail because those policies can no longer do the job. Mm. If she diverts from them, she will be accused of having abandoned the great man's policies. Thank you so much, Yanis. As the forum came to a close... Jayati Ghosh left us with this encouraging message. 
after these two days, I feel much more uh, invigorated about the possibilities of meeting those demands. I, I mentioned that you know we should look around for the little ones that will not offend too many people and get as many allies as we can and so on. Now I'm feeling actually, no, what the hell, let's get bolder. 